Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Mean Old Lion Media presents the history of being black. Welcome to the History of Being Black podcast, where we talk about elevate on all things on being black. I am your host, Jay Hall, and I am here with Twink Williams Burns. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. Let me just first off say I love your name. I love Twink. <laughs> I just want to go. <laughs> when I saw that, I was like, yo, that is so dope. I just want to say that. Like, that is so dope. Thank you. My parents felt the same way. <laughs> Yo, I love your parents. Like, I just think that's so dope. I just think, I don't know. I'm, I'm big into yeah. uh, names, especially like the first impressions. And I'm really big on like when parents yes. name their kids. I'm like, I like it. Like, I, I like names <laughs> like that. So I just want to tell you off the top, you know, I love your name. Oh, thank you. Well, you know, don't give them too much credit because a lot of people think it's from Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star or like Twinkle in My Eye. And it's nothing that profound or sweet. It's really just that my dad was really hungry. And when I was born, he thought I looked like a Twinkie, you know, like a, like a Twinkie. <laughs> and that's it. But at least I always say there are only two two things that will survive World War Three, and that's cockroaches and Twinkies. So I'm good with that. You know, so crazy. I, I didn't even think that goes to show you how my childhood was. I need to go to therapy because I didn't even think fantasy, anything like that. I just liked the name. It was just like tweet. You know, it just made me pay attention. <laughs> I like names that make me pay attention. So I didn't even think any of that. I didn't think magical or none of that. I was just like, that's a dope ass name. Like, I just like it. So, you know, it's cool. Especially, well, thank you. Especially, uh, you know, and the reason I'll tell you more is the reason why I was so interested in your name is because the fact of what you do. Now, this title right here, I've been practicing this title all day. So I'm going to get this right on the first trial. Okay. I'm like Jay-Z. Okay. I'm going to get this title right on the first title. Twink Williams Burns, you are a <clears throat> strategic advisor for admission and financial aid community engagement at Williams College. You got it. Oh, I got it. Got it. Thank you. I appreciate it. it. Knocked it out the park. Boy, let me tell you, there was a lot of mirror conversations with myself. (laughs) There's a lot of mirror conversations with myself. You do those too? I thought I was the only one who did those mirror conversations. I'm glad that someone else does them. No, I definitely do. I I definitely do. Uh, So now I'm going to have to ask you, can you explain that title? Sure. So um, really what it means is that I have one foot in admission and one foot in financial aid. I work directly with the Dean of Admission and Financial Aid on a lot of strategic projects. So um, those include things, big picture policy changes. Like recently we changed the entire financial aid model at Williams College to remove all loans, all work study jobs. Um, all summer earnings expectations. And we also give students for free textbooks and health insurance and summer storage, et cetera. Um, And so, you know, that type of change is obviously a big picture policy change. It requires lots of steps along the way. Um, So I get to help out with those things. And then I also get to read applications and vote on them and package financial aid packages. And I work with folks in the community to help advance college access locally and nationally. 
Um, so the the job umbrella is big, uh, but I love my job. It's it's rare to have in an admission and financial aid office, and I'm I'm really thankful that I get to have it. You know, honestly, I don't know if I never heard of that title before or I wasn't paying attention. Are you the first with that title at Williams College? Are you the first with that title, period? Like, how did that come about? Yes, I'm the first with the title at Williams College. I don't know of anyone with that specific title at other colleges, but I do know that other deans of admission and financial aid have some sort of special advisor or strategic advisor role that works with them either as part of a bigger role or something like that. So there are some different models out there, but I'm the first one at Williams College. And what puts you on that journey for that? Because you are also a Williams alumni, correct? Correct. Yes, I am a Williams alum. Um, nothing to do with my maiden name, Williams. I always say if I have any relation to the Williams College founder, it was because he owned my family. Um, Talk about it. But we... I, <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm the first in my family to go to college. And after graduating, or right as I was graduating, actually, a job opened up in the admission office. And, you know, I always thought, first, I thought I'm going to be a doctor. And then when I got into biology 101, I realized that I'm not going to be a doctor. That's not for me. So then I switched to, okay, now I'm going to be a lawyer. Because what else do you do if you go to college other than be a doctor or a lawyer? So I said, I'm going to be a lawyer. So I actually had a job lined up at graduation at a law firm that I had done some internships at. And then this job opened up in admissions and it had a lot of travel with it. You get to travel all over the country, which I had never been able to do. We never had money for that. Um, and I got to see the educational journey that students take all around the country. And I got to see how different it was depending on their income and their zip code. And I said, you know what, this would be really great. They have no reason to hire me. I have no credentials for them to hire me for this, but I applied for it anyway. And they hired me. And then that sort of opened the door. I went on to um, hop the fence, as we say, and work at high schools for almost a decade, uh, building college counseling programs in schools in New York City and Boston uh, that were predominantly Black students, predominantly first generation of college, uh, predominantly low income. And, uh, and now I'm back at Williams. They pulled me back <laughs> and I get to do this and think sort of bigger picture and big policy. First of all, let me give you a round of applause for having a confidence of a of a white male with no resume to say I can do that. Of a mediocre that. white of male. Of a mediocre white male <laughs> to say I can do that. Only you actually could. <laughs> and you actually had some credentials, but you actually did. So shout out to you for that. That's just, we're not going to let that skim over. Thank um, you. We're not going to let that skim over at Thank all. Thank you. I say you that know. to my students. I say that to my students all the time. Like, get yourself the confidence of a mediocre white man walking into this conversation, walking into this job interview. You got this. You will see the wonders it would do. Like, it, it will do wonders. It will do wonders. I agree. I agree. Yes. Let's um. So let's back step a little bit because I had also was reading the bio and it said stated that you were very passionate about first generation. And you even mentioned that just a moment ago. What's a little bit of your mm -hmm. educational history and your family background that even got you to that point of Williams College and thinking like that or even attempting to be a doctor? Yeah. So I, oh goodness. Um, well, let's see. I'm going to, I'm going to start with slavery just real quick. I'll make it real short. Why not? So <laughs> my, I mean, that's where it all starts, right? <laughs> if we're honest. Um, so my great grandfather 
was the first one. My great grandfather, Jacob, Jacob Williams was the first one in, on this continent in our family that was allowed to learn how to read, right? He had access to, as a 22-year-old man, he had access to school up to sixth grade. This is in Forest, Mississippi, so South Central Mississippi, cotton country, obviously a segregated one-room schoolhouse. He really only had, you know, farming labor experience, and also some blacksmithing experience. So he grew that into a blacksmith shop. But because he was the first generation out of slavery, he couldn't own the land that the shop was on. So when he died early, which many reasons that he died early, including, you know, seeing people lynched around him, no health care, etc. He was in his early 50s. The shop closed down and that was it, right? So sort of no generational wealth, but trying, trying really hard. His son, my grandfather, Wendell Williams Sr., decided he was going to go the sawmill route because at that time, sawmills, you could actually like move across the country with sawmills as they were sort of deforesting different areas, particularly of Indian reservation land. So you can move across country, but it was a way to sort of get out, see the world, try something new. So he did that and then eventually became a porter on the trains. He did that, um, was able to make enough to put food on the table, but, you know, not to buy a home. He didn't have above an eighth grade education and there was no upward mobility available for porters. My dad still attending segregated schools because people forget this. You know, I'm only in my 30s and my father attended segregated schools. People forget that it's so recent. Um, So he attended segregated schools and he uh, always knew that there was only a couple different ways that you could actually make money as a Black person in this country. One was having some great luck around a talent that you had, right? So he had known that his his grandfather's cousin was um, Big Boy Crudup, who is from Forest, Mississippi, uh, who Elvis had recorded three of his songs. And Big Boy was never compensated, was a bus driver till he died. Are you calling um, Elvis a thief? So we knew that even... What? I would never call Elvis <laughs> a thief. What? <laughs> Uh, uh, continue. I'm saying continue. You know, I'm just his. You know. <laughs> yes, <laughs> um, his estate just may be sitting on millions and millions of dollars that he did not earn. But anyway, so my dad knew that even with sort of amazing, some sort of amazing talent or ability, that it's probably not going to be enough because of how racism works. He knew that you could win the lottery, uh, which of course was a long shot, or he knew that you could try to get an education and build build something yourself and take away as many excuses as people could possibly find to not employ you, not give you opportunities that education could, could help to sort of level the playing field a bit. So he always pushed education. So he joined the Navy after high school as a way to try to like get somewhere else, start new. Him and my mom would work like six jobs at a time, like total together while me and my brothers were alive, um, just round the clock to buy it, to get enough to buy a house, sort of the smallest house 
in the most expensive neighborhood so that we could be zoned to a good school. And because of those sacrifices, I was able to make it to Williams College and to be the first in my family to go to college. And so I I so respect the many, 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 many sacrifices and um, difficulties that so many people, those before me, had to go through just for me to get here, right? I'm four generations out of slavery, and it took all four generations for me to get to this point. And I can never stop thinking about, you know, what if we had never been enslaved? Can you imagine what my family would have done <laughs> if we had never had to do, had to endure slavery and then all the racist structures since then that are based on the same foundation that slavery was based on? So that's how I got here. It's so interesting to even hear that because to the critics or white critics that would claim, you know, slavery was so long ago. And, you know, you made a point of saying like the grandfather, the great grandfather was the first one to learn how to read. So even when people were free, the stipulations that they had and the blockage that they had, even just trying to advance in American society that the rules that they set up. My grandmother only had a sixth grade education and she even intentionally failed sixth grade twice just so she wouldn't have to work on the farm because she wanted to stay in school. And the nearest high school was almost like a whole state away. So education was really big for her. And she was the whole reason why I even went to college in the first place. Like that was her big thing. And education and entertainment have been the only ways that society or America has even wanted to accept some sort of black face. And it's no wonder why we excel. We went so hard you know, at that. And, you know, your story about how you got to that point. So it's so it, it, it kicks with me. But something else that you and I got in common that I saw, we were both high school counselors. I was a high school counselor um, for about a decade while I was doing the media thing. And so I saw that you were also a high school counselor awesome. even before you, you got this. So now I know as a high school counselor, the passion that exists to even just be able to go to work every single day. But would you say being in that position is what got you there and how? Yep, absolutely. I mean, the students, the students are it, right? They're the ones that keep you going. They're the ones that infuse that, the energy and the purpose into the work. I think about them all the time. Like everything that I do, I'm like, oh, this reminds me of so-and-so. Or I stay in touch with a lot of my students. I'm writing them graduate school recommendation letters now. And, you know, it's, they're the reason. They're the reason. I believe in them. How important would you say, or, you know, what are some of the things that people might overlook when it comes to being first-generation Black attending college? Oh my gosh. This is, I don't know if we have enough time for my answer on this. Go ahead. Go ahead. Um, So... (laughs) (laughs) There's so many things that start before college that people bring with them, right? Black people and everyone else that impacts the Black experience on campus. Oh my gosh. There's so many things. Okay. So, so let's, we'll think about this from, from housing, right? So housing, we have redlining, we have mortgage rejections. We know from the National Association of Realtors that um, Black home ownership is still only at 43%, while white home ownership is at 72%. We know that that creates a really racially divided system, not only in terms of neighborhoods, but also in terms of schools, 
right? So we know that schools are just as segregated now as they were in the late 1960s. Multiple reports have confirmed this. We know that within that segregation, there is a big wealth disparity. If there is sort of the ability to buy homes, if there's the ability to to be hired (laughs) and to be paid and to get promoted, and that money is funneling into white schools, it's going to look very different in terms of opportunities for students that are from families where they haven't been able to own homes, where they aren't getting hired. We know that the Harvard Business Review found that hiring discrimination has not declined in the past quarter of a century. We know as of 2021 that Black men make 71 cents for every dollar paid to white men. And we know it's even worse for Black women who make 63 cents for every dollar paid to white men. We know that if that's the case in these very segregated neighborhoods and school systems, that the funding is going to look very different. The opportunities are going to look very different. The sort of social capital and the vocabulary, the words, the opportunities to visit colleges, the opportunities to have parents who are college educated look very different in these two systems. And we know that what white folks are often taught about Black folks come from things like the media or from entertainment industry or from athletics. I had a student just this year, this year, 2022, I had a student, a white student say to me, this is a student, an American citizen born and raised in the U.S., public schools in the U.S., who said that college was the first time that they had met a Black person in real life. Right. There's the segregation is real. And the only information coming in for so many white folks in these these hyper segregated systems is this really problematic, sometimes violent, you know, stereotypical information. So they're bringing that to the table in college. And Black students are bringing all this like extra struggle that they've had to go through just to get here, plus the sort of expectation or assumption from white students that the only reason that they are there is because of affirmative action. They need to prove and prove and prove that they belong there on top of all these things. Like those, the, the things that students have been through before high school don't stop when they get to college, right? They're still sending money home to help pay the bills. They're still dealing with the violence or the incarceration, right? We know that incarceration rates are so much higher. They're still dealing with all the things going on at home, even while they're in college. So they're sort of living firmly in two worlds rather than just getting to experience the college sort of life and bubble that often comes for white students. So that is, I mean, that's truly just scratching the surface, but I think that the emotional load that students bring with them into college is something that is just not talked about and is very racialized. And we can draw very clear lines back to all the different structural oppressions that are race-based. Even the mental things that you're talking about, you know, when I was a counselor, I had a student, white kid. I was at a suburban school at this time or neighborhood straight D's and F kid, just straight D's, D's, D's and F. And he comes in very, very cocky, young, young white male. And he was like, hey, you know, hey, Mr. Hall, I'm going to apply to Harvard. I'm going to apply for Harvard, just off the strength. Like, you know, you never know, right? Now, here's the thing. My director was was saying, yo, it's good, you know, for him to exercise his confidence, regardless of this and this. Not even a day later, one of my C and B students with a couple A's, 
black student comes in and wants to apply to Howard, where I'm an alumni at, right? He's like, Mr. Hall, you went to Howard, you know, I, you know, I want to apply there. That same director who was white says to me, I mean, he's kind of reaching high, you know. I mean, it doesn't really seem, you know, that, you know, I mean, the guy only has like one A. He's mm-hmm. kind of reaching high. I mean, Mr. Hall, you're like, you know, maybe you were different when you went there, you know, but it's kind of reaching high. That was so frustrating to me. And right. Mm-hmm. I, w- I was so frustrated in your what is noted, your 16 plus year career in education. What has been a consistent transitional problem that or challenge that you've seen amongst black students? Um, well, I mean, that's a that's such a, a sort of unfortunately common example that you just gave. And I was the only black student in my high school graduating class. I got the one scholarship spot in this private school um, because I was coming from this like super, you know, well-resourced suburban school. And it was my counselor looked at me and said, ah, you know, I was a straight A student. I was in a million activities and did all the things and, you know, had the resume. And she was like, I, you know, maybe you should look at community college. And I was like, why am I working so hard? <laughs> why am I working? There's nothing wrong with community college, but there's no reason that anyone should say to a straight A high school student who is also like captain of this and whatever, president of that, blah, 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 that community college is going to have to be their path because they just, they had no idea how to work with me. They, they just figured, I don't know, this process is outside of the bounds of their wheelhouse and they weren't even going to try the community college. And I think I've seen versions of what you shared, versions of my experience come from students throughout my 16 years of having to sort of deal with and process internally and get past other people just not believing in them and not wanting to give them an opportunity. We know that Black students are overrepresented in special education, and we know that they're underrepresented in advanced courses in K through 12, right? We know that Black students are underrepresented on college campuses and certainly in master's degrees and PhD programs and medical schools and business schools. We know that A lot of that comes because of the gatekeepers who are in charge of deciding who gets in and who doesn't, who gets the opportunity and the chance and who doesn't. And I've had to watch over the 16 years, Black students sort of navigate that and at the same time battle their own imposter syndrome because they're like, wait, do I really belong here? Part of what I've always done in my 16 years is the Black students that I meet, I'm like, you earned it. You earned being here. You are not here because you are black. You are here because you are magnificent, because you are intelligent, because you are a hard worker, because of all the same reasons that anybody else is here. And I think that's really difficult because students have to deal with it. They have to deal with it from other students. They have to deal with it from adults. They have to deal with it from the media, from et cetera, et cetera. So I think that has been a very persistent problem. It's just the the lack of like like support and belief that folks have in black students to be excellent. Yeah, you're right. I mean, th- that was <laughs> besides the fact that you know multimedia was my first passion. Uh, working with youth was my second, but that was part part of the frustration that made me kind of make that last decision to say, "All right, I've ten years. I'm you know I've I've done enough because I couldn't." 
the red tape was so challenging, you know, in that. And I remember my last couple of years as a counselor, I had told a coworker, I'm going to stop telling students, especially black students, that college isn't for everyone. Because what is for everyone in that sense? You know what I mean? College technically wasn't for me if, if my, you know, based upon what my circumstances were coming out the block. I was first generation. So what is not for everyone when you think about that? And I was like, I'm, I'm going to stop saying that language because not a lot of them even know what college is. You, you explain that to a high school student. They just think they just see more work. You know what I mean? But we got to start right, telling these right, stories yeah, on yeah. what college really is in order for them to try to get it. Like, hey, it's not like high school. Hey, you are, you're not an imposter. You do belong here and things of that nature. Um, as a final question, um, Twink, what would you say is something that we all can do as a community that can help with that transition? Because it's good to know that there are individuals like you that are in institutions, but what can we do as a community that can kind of help your job and other people's jobs of yours alike? I think just like you said, first, encouraging students that they do belong and they can do it and encouraging them to take the leap. You know, going back to our very first moments of this podcast, and we were saying, have that confidence of a mediocre white man. <laughs> Let me tell you, the students who apply, that no black student should feel like they can't do it. Um, I, so I think number one, just encouraging students. And then I think investing in students, whether that's money, rather, you know, making sure that students get the support that they need. If it's tutoring for a class that they're struggling in or doing an internship that they'd like to do, right? Pushing your employer to open up internship spots for high school students, whether it's mentoring a student to just sort of be a consistent, you know, multi-year voice, encouraging them and battling that imposter syndrome or that sort of lack of confidence that they might have. It's advocating on your local level with the school board, on your state level, and on the federal level for education funding, ensuring that public school students are getting the funding that they need to be able to learn and excel and succeed and, and really unlock the, the academic journey that they deserve to have and that students who can pay for it at private schools do have. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of things. I guess it depends on which, which sort of prong we want to look at it from, but no matter where anyone is situated, there is something that you can do to advocate for young Black students personally or financially or politically. There's always something that people can do. So I really encourage everyone to think about, you know, what is the thing that I can do knowing that this is a beautiful way to show in your actions that Black Lives Matter and it's an important way to prove that Black folks are just as capable and just as valuable as anyone else. Because despite the fact that we are four generations from slavery, that is still not a well-known, widely believed truth. Thank you very much. I appreciate that, Jim, that you just gave. That's We need more of that. Um, how can, I know you're not on social media because you, know, you wrote that. Is there, how, how can people, uh, you know, reach you, whether now, I, now listen, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you, I make this argument that I feel like people like you who are knowledgeable and are doing it should be on these platforms because it's the ignorant people who are on these platforms that we need people like you. But that's just my take. That's just me. But, Ugh. but I, I'm saying, I don't want to battle like, with those ignorant people though. We don't want you to battle. I just want you to spit the knowledge that you've been spitting as well and leave it to people like me to point people in, in the direction of you. That's all That's all I'm saying. Just know that there are people out there like myself that are <laughs> actively searching for individuals like you with credentials, actual credentials. 
who speak that truth. That's all I'm going to say. But in the meanwhile, how can we reach you and support you? So LinkedIn, yes, thank you very much. LinkedIn is probably the best and easiest way for folks to support or to sort of reach out and see what I'm doing. You can also email me either at my Williams College email address, which is twink.w.burns at williams.edu, or you can, um, let's see, there's a carrier pigeon near you. You could send a note, smoke <laughs> signal. Um, I try to stay off social media. LinkedIn really is LinkedIn or email is the best way to reach me. That's 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 fine. At least you're there. At least you're somewhere. That's that's yes. That's totally fine. I'm not going to yes. push any platform <laughs> on you. I'm just glad that you're somewhere. This has been wonderful. Thank you, Twink Williams Burns. <laughs> I appreciate you very much. So, and this has definitely been a dope episode of the history of being black. The blackness has definitely been elevated. Thank you to Miss Williams. I appreciate everything you have to say. I'm Jay Hall. You can follow me on all social media platforms at Jay Hall Society. Make sure you are going to the History of Being Black podcast and make sure you check it out on all of the platforms. And make sure you also go to the Instagram account and leave a comment in the comment section. Add something to the conversation. And even if you disagree, add something to that also as well. We appreciate you. And as usual, be blessed, successful. We'll talk to you soon. The History of Being Black is hosted by Jay Hall, executive producer Ken Johnson. Find the History of Being Black podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Odyssey, Amazon Music, or where you get your podcast. Find the History of Being Black podcast on IG at The History of Being Black. Follow the Mean O-Line Media Podcast Network on IG at Mean O-Line Media. Get the Mean O-Line Media app in the App Store or on Google Play. The History of Being Black podcast is a Mean O-Line Media production. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.